Rick Samprin for Bill Kelly on the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Premier Doug Ford has issued a veiled threat towards a constituent in response to a text that the man had sent the Premier. Is Premier Ford rattled? Is it time for Canada to impose a nationwide soda tax? While American tariffs on steel and aluminum imports from Canada have been lifted, some say the agreement includes a so-called snapback and the United Nations urging Canada to take more migrants from Central America. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CA. To begin the day, in a voicemail posted to Twitter, Premier Doug Ford issued a veiled threat towards a constituent in response to a text that the man had sent to the Premier. Michael Cole is the individual's name. He posted a screenshot Thursday of a text message he allegedly sent Ford, which included polling support numbers for all political parties in Ontario. He's referencing the recent Ipsos poll, which showed that the leaderless Liberal Party would be elected if an election were held uh, the day after this poll was released. The screenshot also shows a message which read, How long did it take the provincial Liberals to become this unpopular? It's almost like it's a province-wide case of buyer's remorse. Hint, we wanted liberal policy without corruption. You gave us corruption with incompetent policy. So after receiving the text, Premier Ford called Cole and left this message. Michael, you got to be very, very careful when you tell someone that they're corrupt. Very, very, very careful. Okay, my friend, I'll talk to you later. So Global News spoke to the man who received the voicemail, Michael Cole. My first reaction is don't call me my friend. <laughs> That's my very first gut reaction. My second thought is... He, he seems to be itching for a fight, and I, I don't want to have anything to do with it. It's just, leave me alone. Let my children get what they need, and leave my family alone. Just leave us alone. The Ford government has been criticized for cuts made to autism funding, and Cole is a father of two kids living with autism. Before the autism thing, I didn't really care about Ontario politics like most people. Whatever. I'm, I voted in the election, and that was that, and I move on with my life. And then, you know... They decided to just come after, you come after me, I don't care, I got a thick skin. You come after my children, you're opening up a can of worms. Global News reached out to uh, Ford's office for comment, one of his spokespeople saying that the Premier was referring to political legal action. Hmm. Let's bring in our first guest. Duff Conacher is his name, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa, and he joins us now. Mr. Conacher, good morning. Good morning. What do you make of this situation between Ford and Mr. Cole? Well, it's not something that politicians should be doing. Um, People also should be a bit more careful. Out there amongst the public, the word corrupt has two meanings. One is you know, that you've corrupted, distorted something, made things in a bad way. But what it really does mean is that you violated the criminal code. And uh, that is saying that someone has crossed that line in the criminal code. And, of course, you really shouldn't say something like that unless you have clear evidence that it has happened or if someone's been corrupt, corrupt, uh, convicted. So Michael Coley is using the word corrupt basically in a, I'm not sure if he's calling Ford corrupt, but I think he's calling politicians in general uh, corrupt or their policy as being corrupt. So did he step over a line? Yeah, exactly. And so it would likely, in a libel lawsuit, if Doug Ford did go ahead with one, 
he would, uh, Mr. Cole would have the defense of fair comment or, you know, that the word has several meanings and he meant it in a certain way. Um, and it is a, a word thrown a lot around in legislatures. Politicians are allowed to libel and slander each other in any legislature across the country, which is really a rule that should be taken away um, because it allows them to say many dishonest things that mislead voters as well. But, uh, yeah, in a libel lawsuit, he would have that defense. Because he would be saying, I was talking about the policies, not about the person. But back to Ford's action, you don't follow up with that. And Mayor Jim Watson here in Ottawa got into trouble as well with threatening people who were tweeting him, and he was blocking them on Twitter because he didn't like what they were saying. If you're going to be a politician out there in the public eye, saying the kinds of things that Ford says in uh, his uh, in the legislature a lot about other politicians and sometimes outside the legislature, then if you're going to give it, you should be able to take it and you really shouldn't be threatening voters when you have the power of the state behind you. you know, it, is, it is a real threat to a voter to hear a premier tell them, you better watch out. Uh, the premier has been accused of having very thin skin and this seems to be uh, a case of that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, especially um, given, as I mentioned, that he threw around that word quite a lot himself inside and outside the legislature. And uh, people could easily have said, well, it sounded like you were talking about former Premier Kathleen Wynne personally when you were making a lot of the comments that Ford made in the past. And he would say, oh, no, I was just talking about her policies. Well, seems to be what Mr. Cole's talking about as well, and Mr. Ford's taking it personally. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander, and he really should be, uh, again, as a premier, he's threatening the force of the government against a citizen for uh, a comment that I think any libel lawyer would say was, was fair comment to make. It's no secret that... And he's calling his home voicemail as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is a real threat when a premier is calling your home voicemail and saying... You better be really careful, really careful. Uh, it's no secret that uh, Doug Ford and, you know, very similar to his late brother Rob, have an open uh, phone policy. You know, they give out their cell phone numbers. Uh, Doug Ford says, hey, you know, call me anytime. People do. He calls them back. I mean, that's that's not out of the norm. Obviously, what he said during this voicemail is very concerning. Uh, does this type of incident maybe put the kibosh on that open phone policy? Um. Well, he doesn't have to be responding that way to people who call him, certainly. So I think that's really what uh, he has to put the kibosh on, is uh, responding that way. And, you know, lots of people jump on everything politicians say and don't realize how hard they work. It is a big job to be a premier or a prime minister and takes up a lot of time and they tend to get exhausted and obviously frustrated by all the little crises that can happen and public response and things like that. Politicians have to be very careful, especially when you're a premier, uh, that uh, your response doesn't amount to a threat of the power of the state against an uh, individual citizen. It's, it's a very dangerous thing. Uh, and, you know, people should be aware as well that Doug Ford was found guilty of violating the ethics code when he was a Toronto City Councillor for helping clients of his family's company. And uh, so he does have a record of breaking ethics rules, which again is part of what makes it a fair comment, I think, for Michael Cole to be raising this issue 
about the ethics of the Ford government. Duff Conacher is our guest. He's the co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill today. How does this story, because this story has has a shelf life here, it's not going away anytime soon, but how, how does it play out in the public? I think people will look at it and say, wow, Doug Ford is bullying a citizen. And... Uh, Jim Watson faced the same here in in Ottawa as the mayor when he responded very aggressively to people who were tweeting things he didn't like about uh, his record uh, as mayor. And frankly, he was just raked across the coals by the public uh, and most commentators for not realizing you're in public office. And as a result, the public's allowed to comment on what they think of your record. And again, Using the word corrupt, you have to be careful with that because it does have these connotations of violating the criminal code, but it is does have another meaning, which is people think that you are corrupt in another way. You're distorting things in, a, in, in public policy in a way that that is corrupt overall, corrupts the public interest, uh, is favoring private interests. And, and <clears throat> Doug Ford's vulnerable in those kind of accusations again because, look, he, he tried to... Uh, through a, a process that the integrity commissioner said was very flawed and, and had lots of problems, install an old friend of his as the OPP commissioner. And he's appointed other, uh, his chief of, uh, former uh, chief staff person to the Ontario Energy Board and other people who were on the uh, Conservatives campaign team. He has appointed to well-paying top government jobs and he tried to hand another job to uh, the same guy Ron Tavner that he tried to install as an OPP commissioner through uh, the process of his uh, staff intervening in, in the uh, whole hiring and appointment process and they also tried to hand him a job at the Ontario Cannabis Store and Ford was involved in that decision so it's uh, he is vulnerable to those kind of accusations I think they are fair comment and he certainly shouldn't be reacting the way he reacted to essentially threatening a, a citizen. This story also essentially came out the same day where an Ipsos poll shows the Ontario Liberals would win the provincial election if it were held the next day, which would have been Friday, by a couple of points over the PCs. Is is the Premier rattled at all by these incidents or these polls or these you know situations, the criticism? I will not try to uh, delve into the mind of Doug Ford. <laughs> it's probably a safe try place. To figure out what his state of mind is um but obviously the uh his personal popularity rating has dropped greatly and the support for the conservatives have dropped greatly they had a very thin platform it had very general only five or six big points and uh claiming it was going to be for the people and it turns out he's governing mostly for his people so if you're uh, in his group of people he wants to protect, then you're you're probably happy. But that's a very small and smaller percentage of Ontarians as the Conservatives roll out a bunch of policies, which they do not have a mandate for, given that they never mentioned a whole bunch of these changes during the election. They just There's just no way that they could claim that voters gave them a mandate to do a lot of the things that they're doing. So it's not surprising at all to see people react to it and say, this is not what I voted for, even if they did vote for the let alone those who voted against. Duff, uh, had a fun uh, conversation. Thanks for the time and enjoy the rest of the day.
You too. Thanks very much. Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. The NDP, in a statement, said, quote, For a guy who constantly accuses everyone who disagrees with him of corruption, Mr. Ford seems to have a pretty thin skin. It goes on to say if he doesn't like what people are saying about him, maybe he should consider reversing his cruel cuts instead of calling folks in the middle of the night to complain about his polling numbers, leaving them feeling threatened. That's a good point. You know, the premier can call people back, but as Duff said, you know, it's how he says things and what he says, most importantly, uh, that, uh, you know, he should be uh, taking a second glance at. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Is it time Canada implement a nationwide soda tax? So Ontario's liberal MPs want to include in the party's platform in advance of this fall's federal election campaign, the idea of a coast-to-coast soda tax. Apparently there's a, a list of caucus platform priorities that have been established, and the soda tax is on that list. Word is it would raise about $1.2 billion annually to fund a national healthy eating strategy that would provide nutritious lunches to schools. The move also aims to reduce obesity, obviously, thus saving the already strained healthcare system a lot of money. Here's some stats for you. Research from the University of Waterloo shows sugary drinks are projected to contribute to more than 63,000 deaths over the next 25 years and cost the healthcare system more than $50 billion. The draft proposal on this nationwide soda tax. Uh, would feature a 20% tax based on an average price for sugary drinks of $2.50 per liter. There are taxes in other places, notably in Philadelphia. That city's soda tax found that consumption of sugary sweetened drinks dropped by nearly 40% after it was introduced. And back in 2017, University of Toronto nutritional scientists released a study that found that the Canadian Institutes of Health Research called for the Canadian government to outlaw junk food marketing to children, impose stricter limits on unhealthy nutrients added to foods, and impose a sugary drink tax. Our guest is Rosie Schwartz, registered dietitian, nationally best-selling author of the Enlightened Eater's Whole Foods Guide, and you can also find a ton more information on rosieschwartz.com. Rosie, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm fine, thank you. My best guess is you are on board with a nationwide soda tax. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everywhere that it has has been introduced, it has resulted in a decrease in sugar-sweetened beverage consumption. So it seems like a good idea. So what's been the holdup? I mean, this should have been done years ago. Well, um, I don't think the beverage industry wants that to happen. And when you have, you know, large companies that are lobbying the government and, and politicians to, um, to not have it happen, then, then that's something that we see. Whether, whether it comes, whether it leads to real changes in health outcomes, we need to wait to see that. But if um, if the money is taken from sugar-sweetened beverages and put towards kids eating healthy lunches, that seems like a 
Good idea. It's a win-win to me. Can mm-hmm. can we not convince these producers, whether it's the Coca-Colas of the world, the PepsiCo's of the world, to reduce the amount of sugar that they add to their to their drinks? Well, it's it's not just the amount of sugar in their drinks. They do they do offer sugar-free beverages. Um, one of the problems is the size of some of these these drinks that you're getting. When you go to you know a um, you go to a movie theater and and they have the combos, and then you can have free drink re- refills. I mean, what's happening is is that it's not just the amount of sugar in a small drink years ago the size of a soft drink was was really small now you get these these monster sized drinks at you know fast food outlets at at convenience stores at movie theaters and so when people are drinking these they're getting they're getting much too much sugar we're chatting with registered dietitian Rosie Schwartz here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. Um, what are the health impacts of these sugary drinks? Well, they do contribute to overweight, obesity. If they have sugar, sugar has been linked to heart disease. Um, they may it may play a role in certain cancers. Diabetes, for example, is another disease we're seeing an epidemic of. And so it's I mean we it's not only that we're we're consuming that amount of sugar, but it's taking the place of other nutritious food. And so it's something we need to change. We've over the past number of decades, the amount, the amounts and sizes of these drinks have um, have really skyrocketed, and so what we need to do we're we're looking at you know they're they're getting them out of schools for example, but they're still being advertised to kids. You mentioned the um, the the restriction of advertising to children. Um, this bill was brought in and passed by Parliament to restrict advertising to. Um, to children of um, of non nutritious foods like sugar sugar sweetened beverages, and everybody thought this bill was going to pass. It's now been sitting in the Senate for months and months and months, and it's about to die in the Senate because the industry has said we really shouldn't be passing this and the senators are listening and if it if it isn't passed before the election then it's gone and this is something that consumer groups have wanted health groups have wanted um MPs voted for it and the senate is saying no we're not passing it right now and so what's happening is is that you know kids are online and they're they're seeing um, ads for sugar-sweetened beverages or watching it on TV. We need to make some changes here. Are these uh, beverages addictive at all? Um, it depends on, on um, I mean, the caffeine-containing ones. Caffeine is an addictive substance. And so um, depending on how much a person is drinking, yes, they can be addictive. As well, when when a person isn't eating right, and then they, you know, they're skipping meals or not getting in the balance they need, and they have a sugar-sweetened beverage, they will feel a burst of energy, and then their energy levels will drop. 
And then what do they want? Another sugar-sweetened soft drink. Another boost, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, Deputy Conservative Leader Lisa Raita recently said that, uh, you know, Canadian. the last thing Canadians want is another tax. And uh, what the government should be doing is working with industry and advertisers and, more, most importantly, inform Canadians to make good choices. Are we responsible enough as a society to make these good choices? Because the proof is in the pudding that we don't. Well, it's not that we're not responsible. I think we are, as a society, responsible. But when you're fighting against um, the beverage industry, when when it's almost insidious, everywhere you turn, you know there are advertisements. There are um, there are things there to encourage you to drink twice as much as you were going to drink. Um, it's it's not about being responsible. It's about being discouraged from just doing the easy thing. And the impact on the healthcare system is gargantuan. I mean, that one University of Waterloo report showing that this could save the healthcare system more than fifty billion dollars. That's massive. It's. I mean, this is what the figures show. Whether whether it comes out to that, if we if we did make these changes, who knows? But. We need to give it a try to see. And and if, I mean, other places have done it. Mexico, for example, did it in 2014. Now, what's interesting, if, if you read the reports, um, the non-biased reports say that Mexico has seen a significant drop in the sales of, of um, sugar-sweetened drinks. But when you read industry reports from the beverage industry they say that's not the case so if you if you google mexico and and sugar sweetened beverages you'll get conflicting results but when you look at unbiased um, sources they say it it has worked and this is from 2014 so we're talking a longer a longer time philadelphia was recent but but they're even saying 40 to 50% decrease in sugar sweetened beverages health canada has now said drink water as your choice of beverage and so we need we need to follow up with this with these these recommendations with something strong to help people do that I'm all for it. Rosie, appreciate the time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Rosie Schwartz, registered dietitian, nationally best-selling author of the Enlightened Eater's Whole Foods Guide. You can find more info at rosieschwartz.com. Yes, it is time for Canada to impose a nationwide soda tax. Drink water. That's my recommendation. Get off the sugary stuff. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was all smiles back on May 17th when he announced the American tariffs on Canadian imports of steel and aluminum had been lifted. Uh, Trudeau and Foreign Affairs Minister Christopher Freeland went across the country to tout that news, praising unions for their help and saying patience and firm persistence finally paid off. But while the tariffs have been lifted... This apparently isn't the end of the story. Trade watchers are now saying the agreement includes a so-called snapback. Yeah, the tariffs were removed, but the U.S. reserved the right to reinsert those tariffs. Quote, in the event that imports of aluminum or steel products surge meaningfully beyond historic volumes of trade over a period of time. Hmm. Catherine Comden is from the Canadian Steel Producers Association and joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Catherine, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Not too bad. Yourself? Oh, fine. Thanks. Well, let's start with what the heck does a meaningful surge mean? (laughs) 
Listen, what we're first, Rick, I'd like to start by saying we've had a week without tariffs, and that is very good news <laughs> for, for the city of Hamilton. <laughs> yes, there were a few items in the agreement that um, what, they're, what they are are subject to further consultation. So what you see in the agreement is a commitment on the, on the part of both governments to consult on things like surge, on things like transshipment and dumping. So there's actually three areas for future consultation, um, but really consultation as needed, not, not hardwired into the agreement, if you will. So the way we're looking at it as the producers is there's a tremendous amount of goodwill in this agreement, and what, um, what we can see is Canada, the U.S., and Mexico um, have identified, in, in our agreement it's Canada and the U.S., but there's certainly opportunity for Canada, U.S., and Mexico to work together to deal with some of these broader, more global pressures that are facing kind of the North American steel market. So we're not going to see those black and whites, listen, if we hit this number, this is going to happen. Right, I, and, and I don't know that we, that we need to. I mean, the sense is we've got great uh, momentum now with the Americans. What's happening here is we understand on both sides of the border that the global overcapacity is the real challenge. It's not between good trading partners like Canada and the U.S., but it's actually with those countries in foreign lands that make steel, uh, you know, very cheaply, without the same employment requirements, without the same environmental requirements, and sometimes with a lot of government support, and then they bring that steel to our North American sort of market and and really undermine our, our free trade and our, and our market. So that's, I think, what you can emphasize with this agreement between Canada and the U.S. is we're coming together and we're saying, in those three areas that I've described for consultation, we need to work together and protect North America. And I think that's actually a really good news story. So at the end of the day, how do you address that overproduction and, and that illegal dumping, basically, is what it is? Right. So one of the things that I think is left to be done in the Canadian context, and we are engaging with the government on this and have been for some time, is we need to safeguard our border. And what that means is we need to ensure that imports don't surge into our country and then subsequently surge into the United States over historical levels. So, you know, I think there's a a really important um, step that the Canadian government needs to take to demonstrate to the U.S. that we are not, you know, a porous border on these products. Um, so, you know, our, we feel quite urgently that we have to put these measures in place and um, help kind of, you know, take the goodwill uh, that's been identified in this agreement and put it into practice through that type of exercise. We have a couple minutes left with Catherine Cobden from the Canadian Steel Producers Association. What kind of impact did the U.S. tariffs have on companies like ArcelorMittal DeFasco, like Stelco, like other steel and aluminum producers in this country? Well, listen, Rick, the tariffs really did take their toll. Um, We estimate that about $1.2 billion were paid out in tariffs. So that's a significant number over the course of a year. Um, As a result, in different parts of the country at different, at different plants, there were layoffs that happened uh, right across the country. There were lost investments that took place. Um, and, a, and an overall sort of chill, if you will, in the business community about doing business in the steel, doing steel business in Canada. So, you know, it, they definitely had their toll. 
so we're really happy they're gone. <laughs> final question for you. Sure. Uh, what's the likelihood of a snapback to more American tariffs? What what percentage would you put that at? Well, I, I, I wouldn't. I think that what we need to do is continue to build momentum and this goodwill that's been created. And as I say, we need to take those important steps to demonstrate that we're managing global overcapacity at our borders. And, uh, you know, the term I'd like to use is safeguarding our borders for ourselves, but now also for our partners in this agreement uh, with the United States. Is the, uh, I, I lied, one more question. Is the, <laughs> is the finalization of the new NAFTA deal going to help with putting this to bed? Yeah, well, we, well I mean, I, it's, it is to bed, right? So what we're hoping now is that the U.S., that, the, that the, Na, the new NAFTA deal can be signed and can move along. It has good things for many businesses, um, and we know this was a real barrier, and now that it's been uh, lifted, uh, that the tariffs have been lifted, that should proceed, I presume. Catherine, appreciate the time. Thanks. Great. Nice to talk to you. Thank Have a good you. one. Catherine Cobden, Canadian Steel Producers Association. We should mention that uh, U.S. Vice President Mike Pence is scheduled to visit Ottawa this Thursday to promote the ratification of the new NAFTA deal, or the USMCA, or however we're calling it here in Canada. I don't remember the acronym. But uh, full steam ahead. And hopefully these uh, snapback tariffs will never become a reality once again. As you heard from Catherine, billions of dollars in impact across this country, not here, not only here, in Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The United Nations is urging Canada to help ease Mexico's refugee burden by helping resettle some of the most vulnerable of its new arrivals, including women, children, and LGBTQ2 people. Now, Mexico is feeling the squeeze from an unprecedented exodus of people fleeing Central American countries, and some of the worst violence from nations, not at actually war, is forcing families uh, to go north. The issue is, though, they're getting stopped at the U.S. border. Uh, so the U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees at least the Mexican representative, is saying that, uh, hey, we want Canada to do more. And this comes as the United States takes a harder line on its Mexican border, with President Trump branding the caravans of migrants as being laced with violent criminals bent on destabilizing his country. Let's bring in our next guest to chat about this. Christina Clark-Kazik is an associate professor, faculty of social sciences, University of Ottawa, researches uh, refugee policy in Canada and on an international stage and joins us now. Christina, good morning. Good morning. So I guess the, the easy first question is, should Canada be doing more in this case? Yes, I definitely think Canada should be doing more. As you mentioned in the lead up, um, the the crisis is growing because uh, the migrants are sort of trapped in Mexico. They can't get further north and they can't go back to their home country. And Mexico just doesn't have the ability to be able to deal with it. Um, Canada can also do more because we are a relatively underpopulated country. We have lots of space and we have historically provided resettlement spaces to refugees. So, you know, there's definitely room for us to do more. Many people in these caravans need to be resettled because they're simply not safe. There's so many different uh, things pointed at them. Maybe describe what they're going through. So the the individuals that are the subject of the UN request are people who have fled their home countries because of violence, um, uh, you know, sometimes civil war, gang violence, those kinds of things. 
Um, and the individuals that Canada is being asked to resettle are individuals who um, are uh, at risk because of their gender identities, because of domestic or sexual violence, uh, because they're women or because they identify as sexual minorities. Um, and in the context of their home countries, but also in the context of Mexico, where they are currently, the state is not able to protect them because of cultural norms that are not um, allowing them to exercise their rights. Uh, in a recent Ipsos poll for Global News, it showed that most Canadians uh, don't really like Canada's immigration policy as it stands, feeling that we have brought in enough people. Politically, this might be a hot potato for the Trudeau government or any government that, that would be in power. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think the immigration issue has become politicized. We've seen that in the provincial elections in Ontario, Quebec, and recently in Alberta, but also we see it um, entering the discourse at a federal level in the lead up to a federal election. So this is definitely a hot potato. I do think, though, that um, the, the concern has, has mostly centered around people who are crossing the border between U.S. and Canada not so much those who are being resettled um, from overseas. So there's a distinction here to be made because when Canada resettles refugees from other places, uh, we actually go through security screening and health screening and we basically choose the people who are, we are resettling. Um, there's also a process in place um, to receive them. And so because of that, there tends to be a more favorable um, opinion towards people who are being resettled than those who are crossing into Canada or claiming asylum in, in countries. So in this case, the UN is actually asking Canada to choose people in Mexico to resettle to Canada um, through our existing um, government assistant refugee program or through the private sponsorship program. Our guest is Christina Clark-Hazek, Associate Professor, Faculty of Social Sciences at the University of Ottawa. What types of numbers are we looking at here? Are we looking at hundreds or thousands of people to resettle. Right. So the UN did not actually give a number. What we do know is there's tens of thousands who are currently trapped in Mexico. So this is why there is some urgency to act. And as I mentioned earlier, I think there's also a responsibility of Canada being in this region for us to do something in our own backyard, if you will. Um, it's up to Canada then to decide how many it would bring in. Um, so we do have um, caps on the number of government-assisted refugees we bring in, as well as those who are privately sponsored. So there's two different ways in which people can be sponsored, either, either groups of Canadians get together, um, sometimes through uh, an agreement um, with a group, a community group or a church to bring in people. Sometimes they do it on, in their own capacity. Um, and then there's the government-assisted, which is um, exclusively handled through government agencies. So in both cases, um, the government has set certain limits. However, in the past, as we saw with the Syrian resettlement, for example, in 2015 and 2016, the government decided to allow more. So it's really up to the government to decide. And as you say, you know, given the political climate, it's up to them to decide sort of how much um, political pressure they are willing to bear. But I think there's definitely room. I would also say um, it's important to note on the private sponsorship side um, there are a lot of people who want to privately sponsor. Um, the demand um, far outseeds the number of um, spaces that are actually available. So in this case, I mean, there would be room for more um, private sponsorship. Uh, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver seem to be the most natural landing spots for immigrants when they do come to this country. Would that be the case as well for these uh, Central American uh, migrants? 
So again, it depends on the mechanism by which people are brought in. If they're privately sponsored, it's up to the individual communities to receive them. So this could be across Canada. And there's been some um, very successful cases where there's quite small rural communities that have resettled historically refugees, um, even as far back as the Indo-Chinese refugees in the 80s. So I don't think we can assume that they would necessarily come to Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, um, I, I would say that um, if they're privately sponsored by family members or people who have some kind of connection to them, um, they're likely going to settle in places where there already are, um, you know, their community, where there's a larger community. So those do tend to be in larger urban centers, but it, it depends on the mechanism. The government also can um, decide through the government-assisted refugee program to resettle people to sort of medium-sized cities, so Winnipeg, Victoria, Halifax, Kingston, these kinds of places. We're chatting with Christina Clark-Hasek, Associate Professor, Faculty of Social Sciences, University of Ottawa, here on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill today. There seems to be a sense of urgency, obviously, from uh, the, the migrants, especially the UN uh, High Commissioner for Refugees, or at least the Mexican representative. How quickly can this be done? So again, if we look back to the Syrian example, it can be done very quickly if there's a political will. I mean, where there's a will, there's definitely a way. And as I mentioned before, there are a lot of private sponsorship groups across the country who are waiting um, for private sponsorship. So I think it could be done fairly quickly. Also, because we're um, talking in this case of LGBTQ2 um, individuals, there are also mechanisms, like, for example, the Rainbow Refugee um, Association, um, that explicitly and um, uh, um, helps uh, people who come in under sexual minority claims. So, I mean, there's an infrastructure and a will in place. It could be done, you know, within months if, if that's what the government decided to do. Um, I think that, as you mentioned earlier, because of the run-up to the election, um, it depends on whether they feel like this is going to be an election winner. Unfortunately, I think that really the discussion should be about the need, not about the political win. But unfortunately, in this context, I think there would be a calculation about whether this is going to bring votes or not. Definitely. And especially in an election year, that thought process, uh, that, that politicized kind of approach is uh, is going to be a factor. There's no ifs, ands, uh, or buts. Uh, and you mentioned the LGBTQ2 population. I mean, that's a new twist into this immigration equation, too. Yeah, I mean, there have always been people who have fled because of sexual minority claims. But I think that um, in the current political climate, um, and it also in Canada is very progressive on this. The Immigration and Refugee Board, the IRB, has recently, which is the, the board that deals with refugee claims in Canada, they've recently introduced in the past couple of years very progressive guidelines on how to assess um, and respond to claims from this group. Um, but I think it's also a particularly vulnerable group in this particular political climate, both in the U.S., because Trump has been very clear, um, and um, you know we see um, the the right um, uh, in the U.S. Uh, very firmly against um, LGBTQ rights, for example. But also, as I mentioned earlier, in Mexico, but also in the countries of origin, these rights are not necessarily being realized. Um, so I think this is a particular group where Canada could show leadership and has shown leadership in the past. Should be interesting to follow this story. There's no doubt about it. Christina Clark Kazik, thanks for the time this morning. 
Thank you very much for having me. Christina Clark-Kasich is, is an associate professor, faculty of social sciences at the University of Ottawa, researches refugee policy in Canada and on an international stage. Uh, asylum seekers reaching Mexico from places like Honduras, El Salvador, and Venezuela caused a 103% spike in claims in 2018 over the previous year from almost 15,000 to 30,000. That's according to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Uh, Mark Manley is the Mexican representative of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, saying, quote, our pitch to Canada is to do more. We shall see what Canada does in this regard. Uh, I should mention that the Ontario-based World Refugee Council released a report earlier this year that said the large-scale migration of Central American women, as well as unaccompanied children and adolescents, had become a major policy issue in the Western Hemisphere. And Lloyd Axworthy, is the chair of this uh, World Refugee Council, toured Mexican refugee camps near the border city of Tijuana last year at the height of the caravan activity and described the situation as dire and entrenched. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.